So during、uh, World War II, there was a man named Henry Beecher,、uh, an anesthesiologist that was assigned in North Africa as part of the medical corps. And、um, he recounts this story on one particularly bad day when、uh, scores of wounded soldiers came in through the hospital. And this one particular soldier came in and he had a wound. And Henry Beecher, who's a doctor, you know, he puts on his glove and he sticks his hand into the wound. Soldiers writhing in pain. And, you know, Dr. Beecher, he finds a piece of shrapnel in there. So he turns to the nurse. And he says, I'm going to need three ampules of morphine. And the nurse turns back to him and says, There's no morphine anywhere, which was not uncommon during World War II.、Uh, they had no morphine. You know, nurse replies, there, There's no morphine in the hospital. There's no morphine even for, and none of the medics even have morphine.、Um, you know, and the doctor looks back at the nurse and he says, Well, We need something because this guy's gonna. If I try to go in and take the shrapnel out, then he's gonna die on the table. He's gonna die of shock. And so the nurse, without skipping a beat, she goes, she gets a big syringe, she fills it up with saline, which is basically just kind of like a solution of like water and salt, basically. And it's, it's you know, there's no, it's no real effect to this. She fills it up with that. She turns to the soldier, she says, I'm gonna give you a big amount of morphine, and what's gonna happen is you're gonna get tired and then you're gonna fall asleep. So she, she puts that into him. And the whole time, Henry Beach was just like, What's going on, right? Nurse puts it into him. And within seconds, his eyes flutter and he falls asleep. And then Henry Beecher is able to go in and to take out the shrapnel and he saves the soldier's life. Now, upon seeing that, Henry Beecher goes and he starts doing that to everybody because <laughs> they don't have morphine. And it actually works on like 40% of the people. 40% of the soldiers, they just tell them it's morphine, even though it's not morphine, it's nothing basically. And they give it to them, and somehow it works. Now, when Henry Beecher came back from the war, he started to study this. It was called、uh, the placebo effect. Now, he didn't understand how this worked, he just knew that it worked. Now, in recent times, according to Dr. Alan Hamilton, a Harvard trained brain surgeon, we now know how it works. Not just that it works.、Uh, so there was an experiment. They, they recreated the experiment. They gave a guy morphine and they see what happens. And what happens is there's activity in what's called the rostral anterior cingulate cortex. I don't know what that is, but <laughs> basically it is the part of the brain where we house beliefs, where our trust and our faith is, right? For example, like spiritual beliefs. Now, later, that volunteer is given, you know, and it, it works, right? The morphine does what it's supposed to do, it reduces his pain. And then later, the person is given an injection of saline that is inactive. And the same thing happens. That part of his brain is activated. And what they found that, that belief that it is working is so powerful. That the brain acts like it actually is morphine, and that it acts like morphine to the person. And that is, as this doctor puts it, Dr. Hamilton puts it, that is the power of hope. That is what hope can do. He talks about studies he's done on kidney cancer and how he knows. A more hopeful person will have a better chance of survival. In fact, he studied heart disease. If they're pessimistic, 
uh, they will have more than double the odds of having a serious complication. He looked at HIV. The pessimistic group versus an optimistic group will have a threefold higher risk of dying, which is incredible. These are just medical studies that have been done. That is the power of hope, a power that unfortunately we do not utilize enough. Now today is Easter Sunday. It is a day that we celebrate that hope. In fact, uh, a great hope, a powerful hope. And the question that we're going to be looking at today is, how can we harness the most powerful hope that is available to us today? How can we harness the most powerful hope available to us today? That's what we're going to be looking at. And so if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. If you don't have your Bible, it's right up there in front of your face on the screen. Uh, Luke 24. We're going to start in verse 13, and uh, we'll read all the way through verse 35, but we'll take it one piece at a time. So Luke 24, 13. This is God's word, and it says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? Now let's pause right there. Let's pause right there for a second. So, just to... Just to recap what's happened here. Two men are walking on a road, leaving Jerusalem to a town that is seven miles away, tells us Emmaus is seven miles away from Jerusalem, and they're talking about the events that have occurred. Now, this is after Jesus has died. This is, in fact, after the resurrection. It's right after the empty tomb. These guys are leaving Jerusalem, but the events that they are discussing, so they would have come for the Passover, and now they're leaving to go, presumably back home, their hometown, and the word, one of the words that's used there, discuss, could also be translated debated, suggesting an emotionally charged dialogue. So they're kind of debating back and forth, okay, what happened? What is really the meaning of these events? This guy named Jesus came in. Remember, and just last week, we talked about the triumphal entry. So he's coming into Jerusalem, he's riding on the donkey, people are laying down the palm branches, they're saying, Hosanna in the highest, right? Remember, that's what's going on. And then, you know, not a week later, he, he dies on the cross, and he's buried. And now people are like, what's going on? And now Jesus himself <laughs> steps into their conversation. He's like, what are you guys talking about? Now this is, this is kind of, it's, it's kind of funny, but Jesus, he comes in. They don't recognize him. He is veiled in some way, and he has many occurrent post-resurrection appearances like this. And they are visibly saddened by the question. It says they were looking sad. Has that ever happened to you? Like somebody asks you a question, right? And just the question, uh, you know, the question alone is enough to make you sad, right? Like, how did you do on the test or something like that? You know, um, how did the interview go? You know, 
how did the how did the date go right something like that and all and you're just sad right because apparently you know it didn't go well so the question alone makes you sad that's what's happening here because it makes them think about the events and not only are they sad but one of them cleopas the only one who's named is shocked at the ignorance of this man now that's just ironic of course because the man is jesus but he says you know like are you the only person that doesn't know what's just happened you can understand, though, right? Like, imagine you went to the market today. You know, you go to the market, and somebody comes up to you and is like, what's up with all the masks? Right? You'd be like, what? do you not know what's going on in the world? Like, do you have no idea what's happening here? Like, he's shocked at this person's ignorance. He's a little even triggered. Are you the only visitor? Are you the only one? Of course, this is incredibly ironic because he's asking Jesus, you haven't heard of Jesus? Uh, that's, you know, God, God has to be funny, right? This is straight up, this is Jesus straight up trolling people after his resurrection. And they're really sad that he died. I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's very ironic. Now, let's read on in the passage. Verse 19. So then he said to them, what things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yet, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So Jesus, being Jesus, he trolls them a little further. He says, what kind of things? Like, what things are you talking about? And they recount or Cleopas recounts, or they recount, everything that about Jesus. Jesus' life. Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word. The chief priests and rulers de- delivered him up to be condemned to death. They crucified him. And they even testified to what's happened afterwards, because apparently in the, this morning, some women went to the tomb. They found it empty. They encountered some angels and disciples went back there and they they found it just like that too so it's it is incredibly ironic they are giving jesus the evidence of why they should be happy actually but they're sad about it why were they sad they said we we had hoped he was the one to redeem israel now we touched on this a little bit last week but The hope of the people, based on the Old Testament kind of passages of the promised one who was to come, the people would have hoped for redemption from the oppression of the Romans, right? Restoration of Israel to political power, to become a free, independent nation. Maybe for some economic stability, they would have hoped for some kind of, you know, social restructuring, right? And And you can imagine how that's the case. If you look, for example, at Isaiah 9, 
We look at Zechariah last week. We look at Isaiah today. Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And you can see right there how it makes sense that they would think, okay, well, this is a king who's going to come and he's going to take over the government and there's going to be this literal government, earthly government that he's going to set up. You can see how that's what they would have hoped for. And that was probably what they hoped for, not to pay so many taxes, more food on the table, right? Some, some, some social equality, But they were filled with sorrow. Why? Because they had met the end of their hope. They hoped, and they put down the palm branches, and they said Hosanna in the highest, and their hope ended. It failed. It died. It was fun for about three years. People were being healed. Seas were being calmed. Thousands being fed. But now it was over, and it wasn't coming back. Walking, here's the first point today. Something we must recognize about hope. Walking in fragile hope leaves us disheartened and disappointed. Walking in fragile hope leaves us repeatedly, in fact, repeatedly disheartened and disappointed. You know, um, you know our, our boys, they're getting into kind of building things more and more, right? Uh, Micah is getting into Legos. Um, they would play with Duplos before, which if you don't have kids, Duplos are like the Legos for smaller kids. <laughs> you know, it's the bigger Legos. And, um, you know, and then there's the little Legos, right? And so he's getting into the little, little Legos, like the, the real Legos. And um, because he's getting into it, Josiah's getting into it. And uh, they love building things like little, they will build like little buildings or little cars or blasters or whatever. And it's, it's funny because the way that they build they, they like to build, for example, cars. They really like to build cars. And they build it really high, though. Like, you know, a car should be, like, you know, kind of shaped like that. But they'll build a little car, and then they'll build it up and up and up. Like, so it's a really high car. And then they try to drive it around by touching the top. Now, obviously, um, what happens? It, it topples over. It breaks. Right? They try to drive it, it breaks. They come to me, they say, oh, you know, daddy, it broke, and then can you fix it? And then I fix it, and then they do it again, and then it breaks. Right? Lather, rinse, repeat. Like, it just happens over and over and over again. This is what they do repeatedly. Now, this is a basic, I feel like it's a basic architectural principle. They don't understand the concept of you have to build on a strong base. You need a foundation. Or else, whatever you build up is going to topple over. Right? That's, we all understand that. The way you stack your books, you know, the way you set up things in your house or in your room, the way you even like, do groceries, right? Like, you don't put bread on the bottom and then eggs on top and then milk on top of that right? because you know that if you do things that way, you're going to have you know, smushed bread and cracked eggs. That's not the way that you do things. You have to put the strongest foundation on the bottom. And yet, too often, we build our hope on this fragile foundation, the foundation of our hope is, 
you know, wealth and comfort. It is success and influence. It is reputation and image. And that hope is not going to last. It's not going to survive. It's going to topple over. It's going to meet its end. It doesn't mean that we can't have any hope besides Christ, that we can't have hope for our careers or hope for our families or hope for our, you know, our churches or our teams, you know, when they come back eventually. But the point is this, when our hopes are not built on the risen Christ himself from the ground up, that is, from scratch, when we try to add Jesus on top of another hope that's already been built, it's not going to work. It's going to topple over. It's going to fail. Dr. King puts it this way, we must accept finite disappointment but never lose infinite hope. Now, quick question before we move on. Do you find that you are often disappointed? You know, in people, in your boss or your coworkers or your spouse or your family or your parents, uh, maybe in your circumstances and something that's going on in your life or even in yourself? If that is the case, I would ask, I would ask you to ask yourself, what is my foundation for hope? What is the foundation of my hope? This is a good time to examine that question. Now that's point one. Walking in fragile hope leaves us repeatedly disheartened and disappointed. Now let's read on here. Luke 24, verse 25. It says, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he, was, he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Now here is point two. Walking in the word of the risen Christ leads us to a risen hope. Walking in the word of the risen Christ leads us to the risen hope. Now Jesus rebukes them. He says, oh, foolish ones. You know, oh, this kind of interjection is usually used to, to kind of put this emotion into it. It indicates strong emotion. He says, oh, foolish ones. Don't you get it? Don't you understand what this Bible is all about? What this word is all about? And he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. This is essentially saying he, he goes through the entire, all of Scripture at that time, the Scripture that they had. And he interpreted the things, he interpreted the Scriptures for them about himself. He's saying, all of this was about me. Right now, they still don't know that this is Jesus. But he explains that all of this is about Jesus. They recount, now it's, they don't know 
that what they're telling him is good news. They're recounting it as bad news. And Jesus is explaining to them, no, this is in fact good news. Now, why is our hope misplaced? Why do we misplace our hope? What causes us to do that? Because often we are basing our hope, we have the wrong hope because we're basing it on the wrong news. Like, you know, coronavirus and unemployment stats and racism. Like, if you fill yourself with the news of the world, you'll think the purpose of your life is to fear everything that's unknown and to fix everything that's broken. Now, I have a question for you. In light of your news, what's your gospel? Like, what is the good news to you? You know, is it jobs coming back? Is it recreation coming back? You know, is it sports coming back and concerts coming back and restaurants coming back? You know, is it even now, like, low mortgage rates or discounted stock prices? Is it, you know, impending family change or move or marriage on the way or baby on the way or... You know, is, is, what, is the, what is the gospel? Is it in politics? Is it in tolerance? Is it in social justice? Now, those are all good things, but they are terrible gospels. See, our hope is only as good as the news that it's based on. What is the news that our hope must be built on? Now, as, let's, Let's, let's read on for a moment. Verse 30, it says, When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As soon as he vanishes, right, he reveals himself and then vanishes. As soon as he vanishes, they start to realize the implications of a risen Jesus, of a new risen hope. And they realize that what they have experienced is just the beginning. If he's alive, if Jesus is indeed alive, if the tomb is empty and Jesus is risen, do you know what that means? It means even death couldn't stop him. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, this past Friday was the commemoration of the worst day in the history of the world. That's biblical. Right? Because Jesus, being fully God and fully man, came to earth to save people. He came to his own people. He came to his own people, and his own people rejected him, and they betrayed him, and they insulted him, and they spit on him, and they whipped him, and 
they shamed him, and they tortured him to death. That is what the crucifixion was. It was a Roman mechanism designed to have an excruciating death as, you know, as a uh, deterrent to crime. And Jesus, who was 100% innocent in the way that none of us could ever be, was killed by the guilty for the guilty. That's what happened. That, that, that's Friday, and we commemorate it, and we call it Good Friday. That's weird, right? Like, that we could call that Good Friday because he didn't stay dead. He is risen. And if God could turn the worst day in the history of the world into the best day in the history of the world, into the greatest display of his love for us, because Jesus didn't die for no reason, because that wasn't a meaningless tragedy. It wasn't just an innocent person dying for no reason. It was an innocent man giving himself up to die for the sake of the salvation of the entire world, for you and for me, for all of our sins, for all of our shame he took on, all of our pain he took on, all of our unrighteousness he took on, even though he was perfectly righteous, so that we could be saved and so that we could know for certain we could have this objective evidence of the fact that he loves us. See, that is a different kind of hope. When we understand that, when we know that good news through God's word, that is a different kind of hope. That's a hope that even if you lose, it cannot lose. Even when we fail, it cannot fail. Even when we die, it doesn't die. That's a powerful hope. And when you discover that hope, you stop bouncing from hope to hope, from job to job or home to home or person to person, relationship to relationship, searching for that something magical that you think is going to be found there. That is point two. Walking in the word of the risen Christ leads us to the risen hope, that resilient hope, that powerful hope. And here's, a, here's the third point. Walking with the risen Christ fills us with powerful purpose. Right now, this meal that they share, it's described in almost a liturgical way. They take bread. You know, Jesus takes the bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. gives it to them. He disappears. They realize it's him. He's alive. And you know what happens is instantly everything that they wanted, right, their hopes, Remember just a second ago, at the beginning of this journey, the beginning of this seven-mile journey, they said their hopes were dashed, right? They were so sad. And all of a sudden, realizing that Jesus is alive, their hopes have completely changed. What they hoped for before seems small now. And upon going on a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to, you know, their hometown, presumably, do you know what they do? They go back. This isn't... They got no cars, right? They don't even have bikes. They're walking on the road. They're walking on a dirt road, unpaved road. And they go back because they say, we got to go back, right? We got to run back and tell the other disciples that he's alive, that we just saw him. 
Do you, can you, like that excitement, you know, that kind of excitement, right? Do you know what it's like to, to walk in the risen hope leading to that powerful purpose? See, that's the kind of thing where the expectation is not met. It is exceeded. Rather than have your eyes fixed on some other hope, fix your hope, fix your eyes, excuse me, on the risen hope of Jesus Christ. Now, we're living in a truly unprecedented time. We can't be together. This is weird. <laughs> so we're praying this morning, right, before we even, I mean, you know, before we even got started, we're, we're praying about it. It's, it's kind of weird. I've never experienced Easter like this. Uh, this is obviously because of the coronavirus. We have over, uh, I think, 1.8 million cases now, over 100,000 deaths. Over the weekend, there were uh, 16 million jobless claims. I'm sorry, over the past three weeks, there have been 16 million jobless claims, getting close to 10% unemployment. We're on lockdown. No one's done anything for a while. Uh, my hair is getting really long. I don't know if you guys can tell. But, um, I haircut pretty badly. I'm scared to let Boomy do it. But um, our lives, fundamentally, I shouldn't be scared, right, because my hair is weird anyway. But, you know, our lives fundamentally have changed, and <laughs> we don't know... Like, honestly, we don't know the extent of that change yet. And I know this is going to sound cliche, right? But it's so relevant that I have to ask you, okay? If you had heard, if you heard that there was a coronavirus cure that was available, readily available, what would you do with that information? Right? Because that's news. If you received that news, credible news, what would you do with it? Would you, would you go and get it? Would you take it? Would you tell people about it? Would you post it, you know, on Facebook or Instagram? See, it's relevant because it's, it's the time we're in, right? Like if that actually happened, if you heard about it, if that came out tomorrow, there is a coronavirus cure, medically tested. You know, there's a vaccine. It's happened. What would people do? It would be all over Facebook, right? Every news outlet would report on it. Everybody would be talking about it. People would be shouting hallelujah, right? We'd be like, oh, yeah, awesome. We get to go to church again. We get to go to a restaurant again. We get to go to see sports again and concerts again. We'd all be super happy. And yet, Jesus is a better hope than a cure for COVID-19. Do you know how I know that? Because anybody who takes a cure for this, you know, disease that's going around right now, for this virus, anybody who gets a cure for this virus is going to die still. We all knew that before, right? We all knew that coming into this. Everyone who's alive is going to die at some point. That's not special news. That's something we all know and have known for a long time. On the flip side, the hope of Christ is that we will never die. Even if we die, we don't die. In fact, it's flipped on us. Right? It gets death itself gets flipped on its head. Because, yes, it is the physical death of our bodies in this world, but it is the spiritual entrance into this face-to-face -face fellowship with Christ.
That's why Paul can write, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is the power of the risen hope of Jesus Christ. I want to read to you this, uh, this quote. It's from John Piper, my mentor, even though he doesn't know he's my mentor. Just as rehearsing the details of Jesus' final days leading up to the cross prepares us for the fiery trial coming on us, so also Easter readies us for the triumph that will follow. Easter is our foretaste of glory divine. Christ has been raised. Day no longer is fading to black, but night is awakening to the brightness. Darkness is not suffocating the sun, but light is chasing away the shadows. Sin is not winning, but death is swallowed up in victory. Easter is not an occasion to repress whatever ails you and put on a happy face. Rather, the joy of Easter speaks tenderly to the pains that plague you. Whatever loss you lament, whatever burden weighs you down, Easter says it will not always be this way for you. The new age has begun. Jesus has risen, and the kingdom of the Messiah is here. He has conquered death and sin and hell. He is alive and on his throne, and he is putting your enemies, all your enemies, including death, under his feet. Easter says that the one who has conquered death has now made it the servant of our joy. I'm going to say just a couple things to you in closing. Uh, For every challenge and struggle we face, and I know we're facing a lot right now, um, there is a risen hope that testifies it will get better. Things are tough today, and things are tough for many of us, if you're a little stressed, if you're a little worry, weary, if you're a little beaten down or perhaps a lot beaten down, um, if you're at the end of your rope, know that Jesus was there too. He knows what you've been through, what you're going through, and he wants to assure you it will get better. It will get much better. God has our good in mind, and he will act upon that for us He will bring relief. He will bring moments of refreshing. He will grant you a stronger faith, a deeper joy, a more relentless hope. For those of you who feel like you're never going to be rid of sin, Christ has already accomplished it and guaranteed it. The down payment has been paid. The Spirit will make good. That will happen. For those of you who are uncertain today, let God's assurance give you rest. Even if you can't see one inch ahead, God knows the whole path, the whole trail, and every step of it, and he's going to lead us. The second thing I'd say is for every joy and foretaste of glory we experience today, because we do have those, those two will get better no matter what's going on. Things are good. If things are good, every joy, small or great, it's only a foretaste. It's a preview of what awaits us. It's a shadow of the flood of joy that we will experience in heaven for all of eternity with God. Now, in closing, um, I just want to offer you a moment, you know, um, a moment to respond to Christ. Uh, I'm actually going to ask the priest to come back up. But uh, for all of the, for, for those of us who need uh, some hope, you know, at, uh, I want to just give you a chance to spend some time uh, in prayer. Ask the Spirit to, to, to drive this home. You know, God turned 
the worst day into the best day. Like that is the power of God. That is the power of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And I just really want to offer you a moment to pray, you know, respond to God. Respond to God and, you know, ask him for that hope. Ask him to remind you of what the resurrection means for us. And maybe for some of you, uh, you don't really know that hope yet. You know, you don't really know what it is to be in relationship with Christ. Um, Or maybe it's been a long time, or maybe you're just unsure of where you stand. You know, Jesus isn't, isn't, you know, sitting there with kind of his arms folded, shaking his head. I feel like that's kind of what we think sometimes. Um, But that's not, that's, that's not the way, that's not his posture. You know, he wants to receive us. He wants to forgive us. He wants to be in our lives and grant us faith and grant us this resilient, powerful hope. And so let's kind of take some time and just uh, pray to him in our own words, spend some time in confession, uh, asking for his help. And then the praise, uh, praise team will kind of sing over some worship over us. And so let's spend some time in prayer.